Congress. And so they went after him. That was the part that's interesting to me. So you were <clears throat> at the Pentagon as the press secretary when Donald Trump was president. For the speaking last two years. Of, yeah. Speaking of a situation where the media has been uh, obviously very, very challenged in an environment, um, you saw a lot of things happen. The world has changed. Tell us a little bit about in the past two years, what from your perspective has really shifted? What is what is the noise that maybe is happening in the world versus what is really from a Pentagon perspective, sort of a perspective that really concerns you? So I think to take it back to that, that time when Donald Trump was in office, one of the things he really got hammered on was uh, an issue he pushed a lot. And it was it was actually a follow on of something that that uh, uh, President Obama had raised, which was the, the need for the European allies to, to spend more on defense that uh, we couldn't um, treat Russia as just uh, another country, that they actually were an adversary. And I remember the Mitt Romney campaign uh, debate against, uh, against Obama when he said that, that Russia was an adversary. And basically, Obama laughed him off the stage and said the Cold War call. And basically, once, you know, once it's war back, and um, turned out he was right. And so Trump pushed a lot for our adversaries to spend more, that they need to step up. There was a 2%, it's called the Wales Agreement, the Wales Accord, to spend 2% of their, their GDP on defense. And a lot of the countries in, in Europe just weren't doing that. They were relying on the U.S. to be the backstop for any defense-related issues. So what we've seen in the last couple of years is that, not, I won't say prophecy, but that prediction uh, has has proven true, and that'll give the the current administration credit because what they've done is, you've seen Europe step up, you've seen Europe actually spend more money on defense, you've seen them come together and uh, get more committed to it. So that's been one of the biggest changes. Is something that was being pushed, and um, Trump was being hammered for being anti-NATO, anti-Europe, and his point was always, they need to do more. They need to take care of themselves first. We can't we can't protect them on our own. They need to be more. Uh, that's that's proven out. And uh, I think that's been one of the biggest changes. Uh, I think the other one would probably be re related to uh, to Asia. And Trump really started on the anti-China uh, and, and pushing back on China as a global power and saying that uh, China needs to play fair economically and that we need to shift our focus to the Asian, uh, Asian Pacific region uh, militarily. And the Biden administration is stuck with that to an extent. Uh, and we've seen our allies step up that way as well. So I think those two things are kind of the biggest sh shifts. So when you were at the DOD, uh, a lot of conversation was about the risks of supply chains. You know, effectively, the United States was outsourcing a lot of product into China, was was really dependent upon China. Um, that had to create a lot of stress from the fact that we're so, we have become so dependent. Because you win wars, supply chains win wars, as we, yep. I think is the uh, sort of, belief. What, what what was sort of the, the view on that? Why was there very little political push, whether it's in Europe or the United States, to really shift supply chains back to North America and really make that happen up until recently? Well, I think you, you and I talked about it earlier today was you know, President Trump had his view on how's the stock market doing a lot and, and trying to see how the economy is doing. And as long as things were plugging along, there was not as much of an interest in in upsetting the balance of economic success. And we, we made a bet as a global community 
that the way to deal with China was to integrate them into the World Trade Organization, integrate them 25, 30 years ago, uh, in the hopes that that would lead to more uh, uh, transparency, openness, and that they would eventually change their ways. Uh, over the last five years, with with uh, during Xi's uh, Chairman Xi's second term, it's been clear that's not going to happen. And so I think there was a reluctance uh, for a long time and an optimism that something would change, but that turned out to be wish casting. And uh, once COVID hit, I think it was the the emperor has no clothing, and people saw China for what it was was trying to do. Uh, China's uh, lack of transparency during a global crisis that whether people claim it's the the fault of China, but China clearly had information that would have been helpful to the rest of the global community in combating uh, COVID early on, and they, they weren't as transparent with it, that gave people pause. And I think that's what really changed it. I think there was a reluctance earlier to upset the, the economic uh, system that was working for everybody. But once COVID hit and that upset the economic system in and by itself, people were willing to say, okay, we can't just always be focused on what's best economically. We need to be focused on what's also good for us on a national security and an individualized uh, basis. And we need to pick our, and choose who we're going to be tied to in the future. We don't want to be relying upon an ad, a potential adversary for our medical supplies, for our masks, for medicine, for uh, semiconductors, for microchips. We don't want to be dependent on somebody. You know, it's interesting. We've last couple of days a conversation about deglobalization or the end of sort of the globalization era. What are your thoughts, sort of looking at it from sort of a macro view, having at one point, you know, had really good intelligence of what's happening? Do you think that's true? Yeah, I, th I think that that's that's a given right now that you've seen, not only from our perspective, but I think from China's perspective, it, actually in the in the uh, aftermath of what's happened in Ukraine. They've seen the damage that the Western developed democracies can do to a country's economy if they choose to. And um, while Russia is still kind of hanging on there, there's there's no expectation that Russia is going to be able to continue in the long term with the economic damage, given the, the uh, sanctions and all the others that have taken place. So I think that the Chinese have seen that the West does have power, that it's not just they. They need our investment. They need our technology. They need our resources more than we need the you know four cents per widget that we can get from them, and that uh, there's a concern there. So I think from their perspective, they need to decouple a little bit as well. They need to develop some of their own internal markets. They need to find um, that they're not so dependent on exports for their their uh, income. And then we've looked and said we need to decouple because we need to be able to develop and build some of these things internally. So I think that's a foregone, I don't say foregone conclusion, but I think that that's something that's taking place already and is going to continue. People previously uh, believed that there was going to be you know, a unipolar world and there was not going to be any future global conflict. And that's, it's becoming clear that that's not the case. And so when it, it, there's a chance of a global conflict uh, People need to look at the supply chains a little bit differently and figure out where you're going to be able to get your goods, where you're going to be able to get the things you need more easily and have it protected. And what's the cost? At what cost do you pay more to ensure that your stuff gets there when the sea lanes are at at, at risk or um, there's a, a boycott or a uh, sanctions on a country? So let's war game for a second. <clears throat> do you believe that China at some point within the next decade will actually go out and try to attack Taiwan or militarily 
um, advance their ambition. So you look at Ukraine, I think Ukraine definitely gives them pause. Uh, Ukraine has been, I think one of the other speakers said, Ukraine had been planning for a war with Russia for eight years. And logistically, the ability of Russia to move the mass of its forces into Ukraine uh, is significantly easier than for the Chinese to move its forces into Taiwan. Uh, so that's given them pause. I don't think China's plan has ever been necessarily to militarily decimate Taiwan. It was to uh, make it a foregone conclusion that the Taiwanese had to ex accept Chinese control and to put enough pressure and force either economically, militarily, uh, culturally on them uh, to get them to relent. An invasion of Taiwan would be uh, catastrophic for China. Um, Taiwan is obviously an island. They're very well defended. Uh, they're learning some lessons from the Ukraine, uh, dealing with particularly uh, the usefulness of, of small unit fighting, anti-ship weapons, anti-aircraft weapons. Um, and also, you got to remember, most of the Chinese weapon systems uh, and trainings have been built off of Russian platforms. And that's not great. I think we've kind of come to see that some of the Russian tactics, uh, I can't speak for whether the Chinese maintenance is as bad as the Russian maintenance was, but they've seen that what Russia had was not sufficient for fighting a Western coalition. The, the biggest difference, though, is reinforcing Taiwan is incredibly difficult. So once a war kicks off in Taiwan, it's going to be what's there. It's not going to be this rolling people from, from Germany into Ukraine on an overnight train. It's 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 days. It's it's a long logistics train to get there. Um, so I, I don't think that it's just be a very different conflict. Do you think it's inevitable? I mean, do you think it? I don't think it's inevitable. I think that there's China realizes that there there are significant implications of that that would reverberate uh, economically. Um, it would also kick off uh, tensions within the area. They've already got issues in the South China Sea with Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, and other countries, uh, that that would just heighten it. I think there would be a pretty substantial coalition of, um, uh, of uh, Indo-Pacific nations that would back Taiwan. Uh, and the, there's, no, there's no significant economic or military rationale for doing it. It is solely based on a ideological belief that they're one nation. And it would be seen as Xi's crowning achievement to reunite them. So he would have to be guaranteed that he would be successful. Um, it's not, it, there's no, the, the, the downside is so great that I don't know if they would do it militarily. Their goal has always been to create an environment where uh, Taiwan has no choice but to voluntarily become back and become part of China. Well, after Hong Kong, I can imagine they're that excited about that. China doesn't have a great track record of living up to its its paper agreements. And uh, so they're probably not excited about it, but we'll see. I mean, does, does Hong Kong return to an economic, uh, there's, there's obviously been turbulence there, but but how does that play out in the long term? Um, I, I don't see Taiwan embracing it. I don't see it being something that people are excited about. But if their choices go to war, um, that's that's going to be an option that, that China may give them at some point. So, Jonathan, if you were advising a supply chain executive in the room about what it means in a world that's much more 
fraught with much more friction, a lot of multipolar sort of relationships that are existing. What would you advise them to do to their supply chain? Well, the good thing about the U.S. is we have allies. We have allies and partners. And you look at, you know, you, you look at China, you look at Russia, they're, they're kind of this quasi-alignment, this, this Hitler-Stalin, pre-World War II type alignment where they don't necessarily have similar interests, but they know that they are against the others, and that's enough. But we actually have allies and partners, so we have a, a pretty healthy network. Just the geographic benefits and uh, demographic benefits of North America um, between Mexico and Canada, uh, looking at supply chains throughout Central and South America, there are ways to uh, ensure that that connection is there and you don't have to rely on either uh, unsustainable, undefendable, long-distance sea lanes or getting into what the issue with, with the South China Sea is getting into areas where uh, – China has influence that is more difficult for us to compete with because of the long distance, because of cultural uh, relationships and longstanding uh, relations there. The other thing, though, is it's going to come down to resources. So you look at what China is doing in Africa. Um, we have we are a very blessed country and us and in particular with Canada, we have a lot of natural resources, um, oil being one that we probably don't uh, take advantage of as much as a lot of people would believe. But a lot of the future conflict is going to be over resources. China is a resource importer. They need raw materials, whether that comes from Africa, whether that comes from the Middle East. They've got to maintain those relationships. And so I think you're going to see actually China focus more on that uh, in the future and how that they can protect that, that supply chains for them uh, than try to muck with ours. But I would advise people that they, resiliency, onshoring, um, you're already seeing the great example of Apple. Apple makes 95% of the self the iPhone products in China, and they've started to move that out. Chairman Xi could shut down Apple tomorrow if he wanted to. It's pretty scary when you think about how much money Apple prints and how important it is to just its own economy with the app system. Closing, you mentioned and you touched on it, but I think it's a really important point. Energy is life. Yeah. And I think over the past, you know, we've talked about decarbonization. I think ultimately everybody agrees at some point we have to figure out more sustainable ways to sort of preserve what we have. But you can't move away from the hydrocarbon overnight. How should we think about energy policy, particularly as it relates to the Middle East, what's happened in Saudi Arabia? Seems to be, we seem to have gone from this very anti-hydrocarbons mm -hmm. to shifting back to, we're now doing deals with Venezuela, Iran. It seems like Saudi Arabia has sort of felt, it feels like we've been sold out. How do you how do you address all these things happening specifically with energy? With with energy, Saudi Arabia is a, is a the, the kingdom is a very interesting place. I've I've traveled there a few times for work, and it's a it's just a there are a few places you could go in this in the world that are as dramatically different from the United States to Saudi Arabia. It's just a very different culture. It's a it's a very different um, economic and uh, political system, um, but we've built a relationship on on. For, for lack of, you know, just for, for being honest, like for, for oil and protecting, helping protect them. I think you're going to see in the future, they're concerned about the economies moving off of oil. That obviously scares them um, because that is their lifeline. They have very little other industry there. Um, but for us, we have the ability to do a lot domestically between us, Mexico, Venezuela, Canada. In our hemisphere, we, we do not need the Middle East for oil. 
other countries do, European countries in particular do. Uh, so there is some element of we need to help uh, moderate the global markets. But what I think you can see is China um, and less so Russia will continue to look to those places and try to build alliances with them. For us, I think we need to look at places that are more stable, places where we can have more direct influence. The Middle East is difficult because of that relationship that's existed for so long. We've invested so much money um, with U.S. businesses, our military. Um, but at some point, you've got to, we've got to decide whether that's in our long-term best interest to be involved there. We don't want to get dragged into a war between Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran. We don't want to be used as a, uh, a bargaining chip against Russia for more influence and more weapon systems uh, when we can take a step back. Do you think Europe will get through this energy crisis? I mean, every night I just ask everybody to pray for a warm winter. You know, that's that's the the best news for Europe. They've they've planned pretty well. Um, Russia kicking off as early in the year as they did gave them some time. So if Russia had kicked off their war in August, it would be a different story. But they kicked it off in February, so that gave Europe time to uh, do their stockpiles um, to import oil. Uh, Norway and others have been trying to supply. We can we can help a little bit. Um, but they're going to get through it one way or the other. Um, it may not be pretty. It may be uh, politically uh, ugly, and people are very going to be very frustrated and upset, and uh, there could be a lot of tension. But I think the good news is that the West has really gotten behind Ukraine, and they've decided that if we don't stand up to Russia at this point, then Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Finland, other countries are at risk and we're going to have to step up at some point. And so uh, while arguably Ukraine is not may not be in our national interest that Ukraine be a free and independent country, that may not be a national core interest of the United States. Morally, we've made the decision that, it, that it's, it's something we want to see happen. And arguably, the national interest of, of some of these NATO allies being protected is in our core interest. And so we're there. The, the, the partnership in Europe is holding, uh, and it looks like it's going to hold through the winter. And then uh, we'll see what happens with Russia. Economically, they're, they're in bad shape. I was looking at the numbers also militarily. They've lost more people in the first few months of this operation than we lost in 20 years in Afghanistan. You know, they lost more, um, more aircraft in three months than they lost in the entire time they were they were in Afghanistan. So they, they're just being decimated. Uh, and the lead time for them to repair and rebuild is they're not getting the imports. They can't do it. So something's going to break for them. I don't know what it's going to be, whether it's going to be a political or they're just going to come to terms with the fact that it's uh, it's not it's an unwinnable and they're going to have to come to some sort of negotiated end. I have one last question. Sure. I, one more. And they're not going to be happy about me asking another question, but I'm going to do it anyways. Infrastructure. We saw what happened with Nord Stream. Questions on who, there's a lot of theories on that. We may never know. I'm pretty comfortable with who, who's responsible. Who, for who would you? I mean, Russia is. I mean, it's just, it's an effort to put pressure on, on Europe. Isn't it against their best interest, though? No. They, couldn't they just turn off the pipes? Uh, they could, but I think there's arguments that there were contractual things that they could do with that. But did uh, they really care? I mean, they basically left the entire system. Um, yeah, but I think that this way it, it, it's... It is. Um, it makes a point. It's dramatic. It's and they get to blame others. If they turn off the if they turn off the pipeline, it's Pretty on them. Yeah. If they if they say it got blown up, same outcome economically, and they get to blame somebody else. So infrastructure in a new Cold War is very very exposed because we've had this very safe harbor. You have 
telecommunication lines yep. that are dependent across cross borders, oceans. How do we protect that? Or is it inevitable that in a world that we've entered, that, that, that those assets are going to be incredibly vulnerable? Well, I think one of, one of the big things is obviously cyber and that um, all of the infrastructure has some link to cyber and you have to up your cybersecurity efforts. I think as a country, um, I'm not going to pretend to be a cyber expert, but we've we've when I was at DHS, we had CISA and at DOD, we had a lot of a lot of uh, capabilities. Um, we've done a lot. We've improved dramatically. We're more aware. Uh, you look at Huawei, we're more aware of the dangers of integrating, say, Chinese systems into our own infrastructure. And we've actually taken steps to prevent that. That's that's necessary and needed and it can be effective. Uh, but it comes down to redundancy. It comes down to. There can be no more of planning for everything's going to be great every day. You've got to have uh, what happens if this falters, what happens if this falters. People have to plan. Uh, it's going to incur additional costs on businesses uh, and countries to be ready for that. But the risks are, are relatively known. It's just we've got to be able to put the resources behind planning for them. Um, but at the same time, like you said, you can't protect all the infrastructure. You can't protect every not module, particularly in the U.S., where most of our infrastructure is privately owned. But you've got to come up with incentives for people to do it, to, to do the right thing. And you've got to give them the resources and particularly the intelligence to do so. You've got to be able to tell them, here's what we think the risks are, here's what we think the threats are, and here's what you can do to, to, uh, to better defend yourself. Yeah, we saw what happened. The, the most important pipeline in the United States, yep. the Colonial Pipeline, effectively shut down from a malware attack, which yep. is just how vulnerable we all are. But Jonathan, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time or any more time, I should say. Um, really appreciate you being here. Uh, thanks for being a part of this experience. This is the last time I'll be on stage. I want to thank everybody who's stuck around uh, throughout the event for coming here to F3, being a part of what we consider a very special place in Chattanooga and hope that you'll return next year. We want to do it bigger. We want to have great speakers and just continue to expand the format. So I want to thank you uh, sincerely for coming and being a part of this experience and hope to see you back next year. Thank you.